This is Jonah chapter 1. Today I'll be reading from the blessed NIV. Love that text. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he laid down and fall into a deep sleep. Then the captain went and said to him, How can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, Yahweh, please, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. And so last week, if I were to give you a review, it might go something like this. God said, go. Jonah said, no. God said, oh. The sailors said, whoa. The captain said, yo. Jonah says, no. The sailors go, bro. And then Jonah says, "Uh uh-oh. What we see is God gave a commission to which Jonah was in rebellion. Then we see God's determination that he wouldn't let him just run from him. As comical as that was, God was determined to get his prophet back. And then we saw God's revelation. Even though they cast the lots, it is the Lord, Proverbs 16.23, that casts every decision. And finally, it was God's salvation of the sailors. That was chapter 1. And now, listen to chapter 2. The sailors make these great vows, and it says, But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very hearts of the seas, 
and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And so today, if you were going to get one general principle, this is what it is. God answers our prayers of distress. Amen? That's what this whole chapter is about. If last, last uh, week we looked at God is determined to chase after His rebellious child, today God hears the desperate prayers of His rebellious child. And we're going to look at five aspects of this. And on your handout you should see uh, most of this comes from the belly of a fish. And then you see he goes from the belly to the beach. And the, so the general principle, God answers our prayers of distress. The first thing is, God answers our prayers of distress though we are guilty. Though we are guilty and should be judged. God answers our prayers of distress though we are guilty. Now let me qualify this. That means not all our prayers of distress means we're guilty. But he certainly hears our prayers of distress even when we are guilty as is the case of Jonah. Jonah was the one who was running from God's commission. Jonah was the one who was thrown into the sea as a sign of judgment. And this is not uncommon in the Bible. Listen to Psalm 107, 107.10-15. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. And here's the reason. For they rebelled against the words of the Lord. Sound familiar? And they spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And so in 17 you see that the Lord literally appointed a fish Willie, I want you to go and swallow Jonah. And it was not just a fish, it was a great fish who swallowed Jonah. And Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights. Notice what it says there. The Lord. The Hebrew term is Yahweh. It means I am. We are first introduced to this in Genesis 2 when God shows that Yahweh is forming the earth, and it's the covenant name of God. We see it explicitly in Exodus 2, when Moses said, who should I tell him that sent me? And he said, tell him I am sent you. And it's a great name for God in the Bible. It means that He is eternal. There is no pre-alpha or post-omega. 
God is eternal and always will be eternal. He is self-sufficient. He does not need you or I to do anything. He did not create because He was lonely. He is unchanging. When it says, I am, it does not mean I once was or I will be. God is not growing and learning. God knows everything. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He is the great I am. The summary phrase, He is eternally existent and He is actively present. That's why He uses the name I am. God is actively present in your life today. And He is so present and so powerful that He can command fish to swallow His rebellious prophet. He is absolutely sovereign over everything. He appoints and fish obey. It's amazing how sovereign He is. The details to which He will go through to show us His sovereignty. Last week I spoke on God's commission that all of us need to go to the nations. And I spoke about Jesus' deity in calming the storm. Do you remember that? Do you know what our children were taught last week in both Sunday school and children's church? In Sunday school they were taught about going to the nations. And their memory verse was, go and make disciples of all nations. And in children's church, the question is, how can I know what God is like? He shows me what He's like through who? Through His very Son, Jesus. And the passage was Jesus calming the storm. I did not call and plan that. God did. He's sovereign. And so God, the great I Am, appoints a great fish, an aquatic beast, literally. Could have been a whale. Could be Loch Ness. Could be Leviathan. Could be Kraken. We don't know. He doesn't give us that detail. And so in your handout from last week, the closest thing we could get, our marine biologist told us it was a humpback whale, and so makes sense. They've got big bellies. They can hold people. And again, Jonah, who had run from God, finds himself now in the belly of a fish. He found himself in a stinking situation. And he calls out to God from that fish. We don't need illustrations to justify the Scripture. The Scripture stands alone. And so when Jonah is in the belly of a fish, it says in chapter 2, verse 1, Then Jonah prayed. And he prayed to the Lord, his God. Jonah prays from the belly of the fish. Jonah is now... what he's. This is why we've got to give the guy some credit. Although he, he is rebellious... In chapter 1, we will see he is reluctant. In chapter 3, we will see he is angry in chapter 4. We've got to give him some credit because he's the one recounting what's going on. He's in the belly of a fish. He prays and he's now on land. This doesn't mean he was riding it in the belly of the fish. He didn't light. You know, some of the cartoons show a little Jonah with a lamp in the fish. No, probably not. Probably smothered in goo and nastiness. And so he's on land having taken a shower and he's reflecting. And he's a prophet, and so he's probably familiar with the Psalms. In fact, if you go to Psalm 3, verse 5, and you go to Psalm 69, 2, very same language that he's using here. And he gives a prayer of thanksgiving for deliverance, not of rescue. In the belly, he was praying for rescue. Now he's looking back and seeing that God delivered him. And he gives it to us in a very succinct way. Notice that Jonah, when he's in the belly of the fish, doesn't matter that he was probably, wasn't on his knees, and this was probably not a verbal prayer, otherwise you get goo in you. 
So it doesn't matter necessarily all the time where, how your posture is. And he prayed a spontaneous prayer. Probably, God save me. And here he gives you a detailed, methodical prayer. In verse 2, you get a summary introduction. In 3 through 7, you get this detailed recollection. In 8 and through part of 9, you get a renewed devotion. And finally, in 9b, salvation comes from the Lord. You get this praiseworthy conclusion. And you may be thinking, yes, and you're talking, Judge, you're talking about God's sovereignty and Jonah's prayer. Why should we pray if God is sovereign? If God is sovereign, Judd, why should we pray? Well, let me tell you what Dr. J.I. Packer says. I think it's the best one sentence on this. There is no tension or inconsistency between the teaching of Scripture on God's sovereign foreordination of all things and on the efficacy of prayer. God foreordains the means as well as the end, and our prayer is the foreordained means whereby he brings about his sovereign will to pass. That's good. Is God sovereign? Yes. Are we responsible? Yes. What do you do? I hold those intentions like a good guitar player. In the place and the posture of prayer, you see he's in the belly of the fish. Some would say your prayers need to be on your knees, your eyes need to be closed, your hands clasped. Otherwise, God doesn't really hear you. Really? Really? He heard Jonah. And listen to this. This is a good saying on the proper way to pray. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keys, the only proper attitude is down upon your knees. No. I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped in unturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elmer Slow. Such postures way too proud. A man should pray with eyes closed and his head bowed. Seems to me his hands should be properly clasped in front with both thumbs pointing towards the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hitchkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown. And both my heels were sticking up, my head was pointing down. I made my prayer right then and there, the best prayer I had ever said. The prayingest prayer I ever prayed was standing on my head. That's good. Should we bow? Yes, at times. But there are times when we just call out to God. We call out to God wherever we're at, even from the belly of a fish, and we call out to God in, with different attitudes, different emotions. We are to be disciplined when we pray. Richard Foster said, you will never pray all the time and everywhere until you pray some of the time somewhere. I like that. You can't pray everywhere unless you're praying somewhere. And that we need to learn to pray reverently what we feel even when we don't feel like praying. C.S. Lewis, I think, gives us some great thoughts on the Christian life and here on prayer. He says, No one in his senses, if he has ever any power of ordering his own day, would reserve his chief prayers for bedtime. <laughs> this is C.S. Lewis. doesn't mean this has to be you, but he makes a good point. Obviously, the worst possible hour of any action, which needs concentration. The trouble is that thousands of unfortunate people can hardly find any other. My own plan when hard-pressed, is to seize any time and any place, however unsuitable, in the preference of the last waking moment. 
on the way of traveling with perhaps some ghastly meeting at the end of it, I'd rather pray sitting in a crowded train than put off till midnight when one reaches the hotel bedroom with an aching head, a dry throat, and one's mind partly in a stupor and partly in a whirl. On other and slightly less crowded day, I go to a park bench or a back street when one can pace up and down. That'll do. And so we need to be disciplined and we need to be free. We need freedom and form. We need to be alone and assembled. We need to be praying when we are delighted in God, praise to God for good things that are happening. And like Jonah, we need to be praying when we're distressed. When we're delighted, we praise God for a beautiful sunset or time with friends. We praise Him for a job well done or a test taken or a good track meet, a short nap. My wife introduced me to naps not 12 years ago, but 10 years ago, and I like them. And I praise God for them. They're great. You laugh because you know the short nap. You name it. We praise God for it. Warm cup of coffee in the morning. But we also pray in our distress. We call out to God when we are in pain. We call out to God when there's no other way for us to do anything, recognizing that's the way all of life should be. We call out to God in our pain. We call out to Him because He is the only one that will ever save you from your troubles. Not only from your sin, but the rest of life. He is the only one with the power to guide us. You're in pain. You can seek the counsel of others, and it should be done. But only God is the one that we can cry out to every minute of every day, and he will hear us. He, as Jonah says here, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, he's equating the belly of the whale to be going down to the very depths of the earth. He is saying, I am almost dead. I cried and you heard my voice. God hears and answers our prayers. Three ways. God says go. God says no. God says, slow, not yet. Go. He makes it obvious. God says, slow. And you stay persistent, like that widow in Luke 18. You just keep coming, and you keep coming. Or he'll say no. Garth Brooks almost got it right. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Actually, those are answers. (laughs) They're just not the answers you wanted. Thank you, Garth. And then in 3 through 7, Jonah takes the time to give us the detail of what was going on. And it's, it's, it's good to rehearse in detail the pain that one's been going through. It allows you to articulate your heart. And that's what Jonah does for us here. And notice who he says is in charge. Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep. You. God. Now how did he get into the deep? I mean, let's just go back. It says here in verse 15 of chapter 1, so they, the sailors, picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. But Jonah says, no God, you cast me into the deep. Human responsibility is only secondary to God's sovereignty. God is the one who is primary over all activity. And Jonah recognizes that. You said go to Nineveh. I said I'm going to go 
four times in chapter 1. You'll see it again in chapter 2. I'm going to go down to Joppa. I'm going to go down in a boat. And I'm going to go down underneath. And I'm going to go lay down to sleep. And I'm running from you, which is comical because you just told me the Ninevites' sin had come up to me and I'm trying to get away from you. And God pursues him. And God, through the sailor's action, throws Jonah into the sea. Just know that you and I cannot act out of God's sovereign will. We can act out of his preceptive will, his preferred will, but we can never act out of God's sovereign will. There is absolutely no plan B. This is the best of all possible worlds in a sense that God is using all circumstances. Romans 8.28 For God works all things for the good to those who love Him and call on His name. He works everything. Not one thing is left out of His control. You cannot act out of God's sovereign will. Waves, Jonas said, belong to God. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Yet, I love this. He said, I am driven from your sight. The most scary thing for any human being ever is to be outside the sight of God. That is hell. God is not present in hell. And that's scary. And Jonah says, I'm in the belly of a whale, which I'm equating poetically to the belly of Sheol. I'm almost out of your sight. And by faith, he says, yet I will look again upon your holy temple. And then he says, so if the first two verses, three and four, are more concerned with God, five and seven are concerned with where he thought he was going. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down. There's your fifth use of that term in verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars had closed upon me forever. God answers our prayers of distress. Though we are guilty, though we should be judged, He thinks He is going down. He's thinking he's going to die. The idea, I think, is here's your boat in the raging sea. Jonah gets thrown over and he's sinking down and he's going down and he's going down to the bars. That The picture there is the depths of Sheol where the prison, the gates come in and lock and there's no more chance for you to get out. And he's going all the way down and I think it's then that the Lord says, Willie, says, yet you have brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. You see, God answers our prayers of distress, though we are guilty and though we should be judged, and he answers them out of impossible circumstances. There's nothing, absolutely nothing Jonah could have done. He was not that good a swimmer. Jonah was about to die. And that is exactly what Jesus uses in Matthew 12, 38 through 40. That is the picture he is using. In Matthew 12, 38 through 40, Jesus quotes this situation. Jesus believed that Jonah lived, and Jesus references it in history. And he says this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
And this is red letter text. This is the living Savior. This is the one who is at God's right hand right now making intercession for us who can save us to the uttermost. He says, For just as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's saying, I am going to die for the sins of the world. And there's no need in trying to explain this scientifically, just as there's no reason to try to say, well, the Red Sea, at certain times during the year, the winds come and... God parted the Red Sea. Right? There was a bush that was burning, yet not consumed. Hmm. And there was a man in the belly of a fish. Unbelievable? Not, not if you believe in God. <laughs> there is extra biblical literature, Samaritan texts that say that the underworld was a three days journey from the land of the living. So for Jonah to articulate, he was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. He's saying, I'm as good as dead. And God, who answers our prayers of distress in impossible situations, is seldom early, but he's never late. He will come in the nick of time. And you know what? In 8 and 9, God answers our prayers in order that we would be loyal to him and thankful for him. Those who pay regard to vain idols. How silly would it be for me to bow down to something wooden, like that Jim Bay, or let's say I had Lightning, not Lightning McQueen, Buzz Lightyear up here to infinity. I mean, he talks of infinity. He talks of eternal things. If he's here and I'm bowing down and praying to Buzz Lightyear, you would say, you're crazy. And that's what they did, is praying to vain idols. And he says, those who do that, and I love how the NIV puts it, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Wow. Those who substitute the Creator God of the world miss out on His overwhelming grace. Not Jonah. He says, but I, verse 9, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. I think it may have been in desperation, Lord, save me, and I will live out what you called me to do. And then he ends it. What I have vowed, I will pay. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Look back up in 16. The men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Very similar language. Did the sailors truly repent and follow Yahweh? Last week we said they may have just added them to their list of deities or they may have been true worshipers of the only God. And we will know by the perseverance of the sailors. It's funny. If we go to heaven, there are some sailors. Where are you from? Well, I'm from Joppa. Really? How'd you get here? You wouldn't believe it. No, actually I would. It's in the Bible. And so true worshipers, with their words, with their works, with their promises, Jonah sounds a lot like the sailors of chapter 1. He gives this praiseworthy conclusion. Salvation, deliverance, belongs to the Lord. And so he's acknowledging, I'm as good as dead. I'm only here 
because God in his grace saw fit to appoint a whale. Well, not whale. Leviathan, Loch Ness, we don't know. Aquatic beast. I like him. He appointed an aquatic beast. And look what he says to the aquatic beast in verse 10. Yahweh, the great I am, the one who is sovereign over everything, literally speaks to the fish or commands the fish, Willie, I want you to puke Jonah up onto dry land. I want you to just a nice big divine burp onto dry land. He lands on dry land. Fascinating. It's what I mean. I'm not. I'm not reading into the text. It says vomited Jonah, and in the Hebrew that means vomited. I'm not going to go and give you some. Just you've been there. That's what it says. Victorious upchuck, as one pastor said. I like that. And there's the end of chapter 2. So what did we learn? We learned that God answers our prayers of distress, though we were guilty, should be judged in the nick of time, and that we'd be thankful and loyal to Him. And I think we can learn a lot more. I think we can learn, like the prodigal son of Luke 15, Jonah finds himself in a stinking situation. The prodigal son found himself with pigs. Jonah in the belly of a fish. Both were running from God's will. Like the father of the prodigal son, we see that God chases and pursues his lost child. The prodigal son is coming back. The father sees him, picks up his robe, and he runs after him. God pursues the lost son. And here, God pursues the rebellious prophet both by grace. They forfeit the grace Those who go after vain idols, Jonah sees the idols in his own heart. I don't want to do what God says. I'm more concerned with my personal security, convenience, whatever it is in his own heart. He said, no way, that finds me in the belly of fish, yet I will pray to you. And the beautiful thing about this chapter is each and every person in this room can say, we've been there. We have all, whether you're running from God was a casual walk, skip, Sprint, relay race. We've all run from God. And you know what's the beautiful thing about this? Is we're never without hope. Ever. He's going down to the bottom. And God appoints a fish and he speaks to the fish. And that God that we serve, that God that we're, we pray, sing praise songs to, One pastor says that resourceful God surrounds us in our distress. I like that. God's not sloppy. He he knows exactly what to do. He appoints a fish. And it's interesting that the fish obeyed immediately. You didn't see the fish swimming the other way. And this is vintage Yahweh. This is vintage God. Let's see, a Pharaoh is going to destroy the people. Oh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take some Hebrew midwives and we'll turn this situation upside down. Oh, the future king of Israel, David, is going to be destroyed. I know what, I'll use his enemies to save him. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Oh, Balaam, he's being stubborn. I will actually stop his donkey on the road. Elijah needs food. I know what I'll do. I'll send some ravens to feed him. And then he'll cry out to me, I'm the only one left. And he says, get up, I've got 7,000 more. 
but he will take care of the very details of that one prophet, who, by the way, I just read that story this morning to my children, says he was running away from Ahab and Jezebel and just running, running. I'm just, was he an ultra marathoner? Because that was a great distance from Jerusalem to where he ended up. And he went fast. <sighs> and he says to Tweety Bird, I want you to go feed my prophet. Unbelievable? Yes, if you don't trust that there is a God who's created the world that can direct ravens, donkeys, aquatic beasts. And so you just imagine Jonah, right? And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah up onto the dry ground. Can you imagine that? He gets, I would, if I could do like like a cannonball and just kind of land and then... Do you imagine how much he reeked? People say he probably, and this is all just speculating, but he's probably, if he's going, Nineveh's here and he's going this direction, the beast takes him, throws him up on Joppa. So he's in Joppa. Like, isn't that Jonah? Wasn't he just here a few days ago? Dude, what happened? Imagine Jonah, what he would have said to them. He wouldn't believe it. I was running from God and God appointed a fish. And Actually, first he appointed a great wind. And they pointed that caused a great storm on the sea, and I had gone below. I was unconcerned with the Ninevites and even the people I'm traveling with. And God appointed that wind, and there was this sea, and these men were like, What's going on? And I'm the one who actually confessed who I was. I was orthodox in my belief, but an atheist in my behavior, and they decided to throw me over, which was just kind of my last effort, and uh, the sea stops. Really? Yeah. And I don't know how to swim, didn't take those lessons at the Eagle Pool when I was a kid, and, and I was going down to the bottom, and I was all but dead. She always coming, I could see it anytime. There were weeds around me, just wrapped up, up, and all of a sudden I'm just in some something icky, and it's just it's more spacious, and, and then like I'm just praying, God save me, and all of a sudden I'm in midair, and I look back, and there's a fish, great aquatic beast. I didn't know what it was, it could have been a whale cracking, whatever. And I've got that on beach. And they would say, no way. Yeah, that's how God did it. Sounds foolish, doesn't it? That's exactly what the New Testament says. Sounds foolish. The foolishness of the cross. You mean to tell me, yeah, I was one who was brought up in a Christian home and then I walked my own way and I started drinking and I started womanizing and I started doing all these things and I was going to get a job at a great company I was going to make it to the top. I was going to be all God and all partier and it was just going to work out to my benefit. And then I found myself with pain one night because my dad had died and I'm still trying to figure this all out and I'm crying out to God in my distress. And I resonate with what it said, Ephesians 2. I was dead in my trespasses and sin in which I was walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now who's working in the sons of disobedience. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. This is why. Right here. It's a great verse. But God 
being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us. You mean to tell me God would bring pain into my life because He loved me so much and I was running away from Him? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Even when I was dead in my trespasses, He made me alive together with Christ. And then it gives me the reason. Because I was such a good dude and I was making it, you know, I was turning the corner. That's not what it says. It says, by grace, you have been saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe, though, Christian? That's for the, those who may be here and don't believe in the Lord. Do you believe, though, Christian, God would bring pain into your life if you're rebelliously running for Him? Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? I was a son of disobedience. Now I'm a child of God. And this goes to me, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then he gives you a physical example. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline, in which you all have participated, then you would be illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short times as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. This is a great picture of salvation. Being dead in God through a miraculous event saves you and gives you new life. This is a great picture of sanctification, that you can be running from God and he's not going to let you go. Right? Jonah was running from God, and he went after him. He could, but he chose not to. It's a great picture of sanctification, that he will cause pain to come into your life. So the question we asked last week, are we rebelliously running from God in sin or his commission to reach the world, and are we desperately this week praying to God? Because guess what's going to happen someday? That salvation belongs to the Lord is in Psalm 3. It's in Jonah. And it ends in Revelation 7. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, including Ninevites, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. And if you're here today and you think, I did run from God and I desperately prayed to God, but there's no way He could use me. Hmm. Come back next week. We'll see. Father, what a great story. What a great piece of history. What a great picture for us. What a great model to us. that we can pray anywhere and that we can recollect what you've done in orderly manner 
so that others might be blessed by it. We see that you are sovereign over the entire world. You know the details of church Sunday school classes and children's church curriculums. And you've matched those up even when they weren't purposely matched up together. And you appoint fish and birds and donkeys to do your will. Your word tells us that you know the stars by their name so that they might obediently shine for you. And so it is to you that we cry out like Jonah coming to you with all that we're carrying on our backs that we shouldn't. And we lay it at your feet. We cast all our anxieties on you because you care for us. God, enable us to be desperate warriors of prayer. And we'll ask this for your glory and for our joy. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.